If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 9. In the book of Mark, chapter 9, beginning with the 33rd verse. And the disciples are arguing about who is great and the greatness of God's kingdom. What does God consider to be great? What prevents us from being great in God's kingdom? And I'm going to go ahead and give you uh, the points right now. You can have them. I know some of you want to leave when I, when I do this sometimes. But I'm going to go ahead and give them to you right up front so we can just kind of walk through the text here in a moment. But what prevents us from being great in God's kingdom is the corruption of our sin, the crime of our own self-grandizement, the challenges of life that are before us, and the consequences that we incur. Jesus is on the road here, and because He is omniscient, He knows what the disciples have been talking about. And we pick up here in verse 33, and it says, They came to Capernaum, and when He was at the house, He asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. I want us to think about this morning, about what does it mean to be great in God's economy? What does it mean to really be great? Greatness. I think it's important for us to understand as we look at this context of what Jesus is talking about. Just so you know, what he's not talking about when he talks about being great or being first, he's not talking about, you know what, it's not a good thing for you to be first in your sales team. It's not a good thing for you to be first in a race or first in athletics. It's not what he's talking about here. Understanding the historical background, the word can more accurate probably be translated to be with power, to be a ruler, uh, to be in control. That's really what he's describing in this particular instance. And that's what the disciples were saying. You see, many of them probably, a uh, big part of the reason that they're even following Christ is they hope that Jesus is the Messiah and that they will be next to Him as the, quote, revolution transpires. There'll be generals or colonels or at least lieutenants in the army. They'll be ones with authority. They'll be the ones with the power. And that's what they're talking about at this point. And it's a corruption of what Jesus would consider to be great considered to be his purpose. So Jesus does something interesting. First of all, we see that he sits down and he calls the twelve to them. We've talked about this before. In the biblical times, when the rabbi or the master teacher would teach, he would sit and everyone else would stand around him. So when he assumes the posture of sitting, it is the time of instruction. Everyone knows that he is about to give them instruction, understanding. And so he does that. He assumes the posture of sit, sitting and he called the twelve to him and he said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. That word servant is diakonos. As a matter of fact, in the, uh, in the state that it's in right there, it is really the exact word. We get our word deacon. And the word deacon means servant. As a matter of fact, they were started to serve the widows uh, and the orphans. That's why they were started. They were actually serving the food. They were serving the food and they would be the last to eat, so to speak. They would be responsible for cleanup. 
And that was their position initially starting off when they were first appointed in the book of Acts. Now, they uh, definitely had other responsibilities, but that was the primary theme uh, before them. That's what instituted the office of deacon right there. And Jesus uses that word because it's servant. And there were really two groups in that day. There were the servants and there were those who were the haves, so to speak. And if you wanted to put it into three groups, you could say there were the servants, there were the regular people, and then there were the aristocrats. There were the leaders, there were the rulers, there were the authorities. And Jesus says, you know what? I know you're not servants, but I'm asking you to be a servant by choice. And I want you to understand in my economy, in order to be great in my kingdom, it's going to look like a servant but of your own will, of your own desire. You know, we all think that we can be good servants at times. But I'll tell you what I've learned. I'm real good at being a servant until somebody treats me like a servant, and then I don't want to be one anymore. I usually won't be one anymore. We don't like it. But Jesus doesn't put that condition, and that's always a good gut check for us. Oh, I help. I do things. I do a lot of things. How do you feel? You know, it's kind of like, when uh, when you're somewhere at a store and somebody asks you, I was at the dollar store the other day and somebody was asking me, do you know where this is? I'm going, I don't work here. We don't like it, do we? Because we think we're above that. That somebody would think that's me. And Jesus said, that's exactly the attitude I'm talking about right there. Jesus shares with the disciples a great vivid example, great imagery Sitting down, as he calls the twelve to come before him, he tells them they must be servants. And then in verse 36, he took a child and had him stand among them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of the, one little children such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but he welcomes the one who sent me. You know, You want to know what it's like to be great in the kingdom? Then I want you to welcome these children. Now, that's not as, we don't understand that quite as well in our culture today, but in that culture, you've got to remember, children had zero rights. Matter of fact, uh, there are different scholarly information on this, but up to about age three or four, the life of that child was in the parent's hand. If they wanted to dispose of them, they could. And it frequently happened, particularly in pagan, uh, other pagan cultures that surrounded them. They, often with little girls, they would be left out to exposure if they had more children. That was a common practice. And so children had no rights. It was also believed that uh, they were to be better seen and not heard. Matter of fact, a couple of the rabbis in some of the ancient rabbinical writings we have is uh, one who wastes his time talking to children does just that. He wastes his time. That was the picture of children in that day and age. And so he calls one. Jesus completely obliterates the cultural norm when he's talking about this instance of greatness and he calls the one in whom there'd be no greatness, the one who has no power, the one who has no authority, the one that can't help you get any further up the pole. He calls a child and he takes him in his arms and said, look, when you welcome the least of these, you're welcoming me and you're welcoming the Father in heaven. You are connecting with me. Jesus helps at this point to try to 
help them <clears throat> eliminate the corruption, the corrupt mindset that they have. And then it continues here. And John said to him, you know, enough about this, I think. Uh, Jesus, let me tell you something else that was going on. Now, Jesus, I know you're saying all this about children and all. And I'm not sure I understand it, but I know you're trying to tell me to be more of a servant. Okay, God, let's talk about something else. There's something else I've been wanting to talk to you about that's bothering me here. Look, you're going to like this. You need to hear this, Jesus. Let me tell you. John said to him, teacher, and he sounds like a child, by the way, we saw someone else driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not with us. He's not following us. And Jesus said, don't stop him because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us, it's for us. They've just got, Jesus has just given us this example of children. And so Mark, I think, purposely has this in, in perfect context here. John says, Jesus, let me tell you something. Why you were gone, something happened. This guy over here, he comes up. And he starts casting out demons in your name, and it works. Now, I'm sure John was also remembering earlier in chapter 9, he had tried to count. They had tried to cast out demons, and it didn't work. And Jesus said, this only happens by much prayer. And so he probably remembers this. And now there's this guy, and he's, he doesn't even go to our church. He's not in our church. He's not even in our denomination. I told him to stop. You don't do that. That's, that's us. Jesus told us we could. So we have this childish spirit right here. And uh, Jesus says, you've got to remember, a lot of people have listened to the message of Jesus at this point. A lot of people have believed that he would be the Messiah, and they had been anticipating the Messiah, that the Christ would come. And now they've heard the message. They've, they've experienced the, quote, salvation as they would know it at that time. And they believed and they're trusting. And they believe so strongly that they know that the Messiah will be able to cast out demons. That they're doing it in His name. Believers who weren't in their camp. Now, I think that's applicable for us today. Now, let me do a disclaimer. What I am not talking about is heretical doctrine. I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking about people who, Paul has some very strong things to say about people who preach another gospel who invalidate the Scripture and substitute Scripture for something else, for people who purposely mislead people. Uh, and, we, you know, there are plenty of uh, cults and other things that are going on and people who are just wrong who are out for their own grandizement. And Jesus will talk about that right after this. Um, there are plenty of people doing that. So when we're talking here, we've talked about this before. There are tenets, there are teachings, and there's taste. If you'll remember, the tenets are the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that salvation alone comes through Christ by grace through a faith, that we are all sinners and we cannot save ourselves, and that the Bible is the Word of God. Okay? So we're not here to debate those. And when somebody attacks those or goes a different direction, then Paul says, that's an anathema. He, that's heresy. You can't stand for that. You have to call that uh, a lie in that instance. But that's not what we're talking about. We're about somebody who is claiming Jesus as Lord, who is elevating him and believes and is using his name. So what that tells us is that they perhaps had a different teaching. 
Now, what are teachings? We talked about the tenets. That's, they're what unite us as believers in Christ. They are the non-negotiables. But the teachings of how, uh, how we do church government and how we do baptism and why we do baptism when we do and how we do communion, uh, why we do, those are very important things. And you have to have a position. And we have a position and we've studied and we think this is correct. But what we, we, not, what we will not say is everybody else is wrong and we're right. Okay, we're saying to the best of our ability and understand scripture. This is what we interpret. We think this is correct. So you have to have teachings. Okay, you have to have another word for that is doctrine. All right. So you have to ascribe to those. So that's important. And then their taste. We've talked about this before. The music, the dress, the style. That's all issues of taste. This gentleman uh, who was not in the clan, so to speak, in the group was uh, was his his tenants were probably have been the same. The question becomes about his doctrine. He's in a different, uh, he's outside of the group. So today, I think it's applicable. They're outside the denomination. Now, what is our denomination? Well, it's interesting. I get this call a lot of times when I'm following up with people who visited the church. And, you know, I get this question all the time. What are you people? <laughs> when I say, you know, and I like to have a little fun about it. I mean, well, what do you mean, what are we? <laughs> and, uh, well, what, what, I mean, what are you people? What are you all affiliating with? I said, well, let me just answer it this way. I said, you know, one third of our people were raised Catholic. Uh, but we're actually not a Catholic church. But we have more people that grew up Catholic in our church than any other segment. Uh, and then you add another 20% of people who grew up Episcopalian or Lutheran or Presbyterian. And then you have a little, you have a percentage of people who grew up Baptist. And, uh, and then you've uh, got some other folks, Bible church and other folks that didn't grow up in church at all. I said, so that's, if you're asking, we're, we're followers of Christ. Uh, but if you're trying to say, what tribe are you in? What I'm trying to associate, she goes, well, I, or she, I shouldn't say that. He, excuse me, I will tell you most of the time it's a woman. But with that said, I'm sorry. God forgive me. I, I love women. I got a great wife. I got great women in my house. All of y'all are offended. Please send a note to Alan Michael, our executive pastor. Um, I said, well, I noticed at your church, some people raise their hands. Are y'all charismatic? Or some people, they just stand there. And some people don't sing. And so I just wonder what you are. Well, we're Catholic and we're Episcopalian. We're charismatic. We're followers of Jesus. And you can go on our, on our website and, and read all about our doctrine. Y'all know. You know. I was raised Southern Baptist. I went to... Southern Baptist Seminary, yada, yada. That's not what we come to starting point next week. We'll give you all that, okay? Here's the principal message here. It doesn't mean that people aren't like you are wrong. God is working outside of this church in a major way. God is working outside of your denomination in a major way. And when we, we I gave the statistics last week. When you go into Africa and <clears throat> in Australia, you know what the strongest uh, movement of Christ is? in the continent of Australia right now, nobody will get this right. It is the charismatic Catholic. It's the only thing that's growing in Australia right now is the charismatic Catholic church. Go figure. That was an oxymoron when I grew up. Okay? You go into Nigeria. You know who is? You know where the majority of those coming to faith are? They're Anglican. They're Anglican. Okay? How many of you know what an Anglican is? That's what I thought. Okay. Some of you were one. I understand that. So we have to kind of erase this sectarian mindset. That we got it right and everybody else has got it wrong. 
Because God doesn't know your boundaries. And here's the one thing. I don't want to disturb you, but here's the one thing I know for sure. I ain't got it all right. I'm just sorry. I know this, that about 20% of my doctrine's wrong. And if I knew what it was, I'd correct it. But I don't know what it is, okay? But it won't make you feel any better to go down the road because they got 25% wrong. Okay? So it, we all. That's a joke. Mine might be 30. But I know the tenants are right. And we can all become like the disciples in pointing in missing the principle that people need to come to Christ and we're working together for the cause of Christ. And that's a corruption when we start to tear down our brothers and sisters in Christ. For whoever is not against us is with us and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to Messiah, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. Then he talks about the crime. Those who know the truth are those who are rejecting the truth and are trying to purposely mislead people. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believes in me, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and cast in the bottom of the sea. And if your hand causes you downfall, then cut it off. It's better for you to enter life main than to have two hands and go to hell with the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Wow. Two things to remember here. First of all, Jesus is using a figure of speech called hyperbole. Now, most of you studied that in senior English or at some time in your life. Hyperbole, where we exaggerate our words in order to send a message, in order for people to hear it and receive it. For example, my dad used to say this to me sometimes. Son, you do that again, I'm going to slap you naked and hide your clothes. That was, that was hyperbole. Okay? But I had a vivid picture of what was going to happen to me if I continued on in the current behavior that I was exercising. Okay? So, he would use hyperbole. He wasn't actually going to hit me that hard. Then my clothes fell off. But he was letting me know. And so I knew, hey, it's time to listen. I, I better receive this or there is a consequence I will not enjoy coming right after it. Jesus is saying, it's time to listen. Let me tell you how serious I am. I don't want you to forget what I'm about to communicate to you. And he also uses the picture uh, of being maimed, obviously, of uh, end of hell. Let's talk about the hell for just a second so we can come back to this. Uh, it was believed, matter of fact, the Greek word, or excuse me, the Aramaic word is Gehenna. And Gehenna was the garbage dump uh, outside of the area where um, in ancient days, in earlier biblical days, uh, many of the pagan worshipers, as a matter of fact, the, the pagan god Molech, they would come and worship at the fire and they would literally sacrifice children there. Okay, And so to the Jew, this was the most detestable place on earth. And because of its history, it became the city dump. And so everything of refuge, uh, any kind of dead animal bodies or anything of that, it all got chunked in there. And it was constantly, there was a fire going to burn that. It smelled because of the dead bodies. There were worms and all those kind of things. And so if you wanted to give the most despicable place on earth, it would be Gehenna. And Jesus uses that as an image imagery uh, for hell. Jesus uses his imagery here, okay? And he gives that vivid picture so that they will remember this. And he said, look, I want you to know that if your hand causes you to uh, sin, if it causes you to offend others, then, then cut it off. Now, again, we're talking about hyperbole, but not just hyperbole. Also, uh, between 167 and 164 uh, B.C., 
during the time of the Maccabean Revolution, uh, many of the Jews were brought together and they were asked to recant their faith and they were asked to desecrate either the temple or an altar or something that was sacred uh, to renounce their faith. And if not, the punishment would be they would remove a hand, remove a limb, a gouge an eye. And many would not do that. They would not desecrate uh, an item of their faith. They would not renounce their faith. They would not recant it. And so that actually occurred. So his audience would have been well aware of those who stood firm to their faith and literally were maimed for doing so. And so Jesus, again, uses this imagery. He said, those who stood for faith, it is just as important that you not mislead people that you not lead them astray, that you not serve as a stumbling block. As they stood and had limbs sacrificed because they would not recant their faith, whatever it takes for you, whatever you have to do to not be a stumbling block, to not let this sin rule your life, then you take those measures. You do it. And I am giving you the slap you naked, hide your clothes importance of understanding this. And if your foot causes you downfall, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. The unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you downfall, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus gives this imagery. And he exposes the crime it is to mislead people, to mislead children, to mislead those who are young in the faith, those who are seeking Christ, seeking to know truth and to use it for your own grandizement. For everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will go through difficult times, but for the believer, it will be purification. It will be redeemed. It will be rewarded for the unbeliever. It's just pain. Salt is good, but if salt should lose its flavor, how can it be made salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. And the Bible continues here. We've seen the corruption, the crime, and then we see challenges. The challenges that come to us in life. In chapter 10, verse 1, uh, again, Mark has placed this here for a purpose as he's communicating this message. They set out and they went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Now, that's important because this is the area, this is the area and the authority and the rule of Herod Antipas. This is where he has authority. And if you remember the story of Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas, uh, Herodias, his, uh, brother's sister, um, they, he sees that she's attractive. So Herodias leaves her husband has divorce papers sent, even though that wasn't legal. Uh, when you were uh, an aristocrat, if you had someone speaking for you, you sometimes you got away with those things. And he married her. Okay, so it was an unbiblical marriage. He had married his brother's wife, and uh, there was not a divorce that had ever transpired. And so John spoke out against this, and John lost his head over the deal because he spoke out. So John has been killed. So now they are in that area. And so the Pharisees come and they challenge Jesus. This is very calculated. Uh, this is very intentional. And then the crowds converged on him again. <clears throat> and as he usually did, he began teaching them once more. And some Pharisees approached him to test him. Remember where they are? Remember their thought process. And they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he replied to them, what did Moses command you? So they come to him and they know they're in Herod Antipas' area. And there are uh, at least 
there are several groups, but the two big religious orders of that day, uh, the two camps at that day were uh, under different, two different rabbis, uh, two different, actually, uh, they were older rabbis. They weren't even alive at this point, but they were, um, pre, they predated this time. But the first school was that of Hillel. Now, Hillel was considered to be the more open, the more liberal of the camps uh, of Judaism and their interpretation of Scripture. The other camp was Shema'i. Now, Hillel believed that divorce could transpire if the man wanted it for any reason. Matter of fact, they even have documentation if a woman uh, does not cook well, that is grounds for divorce. So really, for whatever reason that you, you as a male want to divorce your wife, you're permitted to do that, but you must give her divorce papers. And those divorce papers said that you were releasing her from any obligation. She was free to remarry and basically that you would take care of her, that you would meet her basic essential needs until that time she was remarried. Okay, so that was the school of Hillel. That was the predominant theme that men could leave their wives at any point they wanted to. Um, but the other school was Shema'i. Now, Shema'i was a smaller camp, but their belief was you can only uh, divorce your spouse if there is marital unfaithfulness or if there was adultery before or after the marriage. So if there had to be some kind of sexual impropriety before or after the marriage uh, for divorce to transpire. And so they are asking Jesus, this is a big debate in their culture at this time, and so they asked Jesus, um, basically, how are you, which side are you on? Which side are you going to take? Now, universally, they all accepted the principle that divorce papers could be given, but it was a reason. It was the reason why. And by the way, they also believed uh, if a permissible divorce was granted, then it was permissible to remarry. That was Jewish thought and Jewish theology at that time. Now, with that said, let's continue on with our text. The Bible says, as they approached him, um, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Because Shammai says it's not except for this condition, but Hillel says it is. And and what did Moses command you, he said? What did Moses tell you? And they said, Moses said that we could write divorce papers and send her away. That's what Moses said. And Jesus says this. He wrote this commandment for you because the hardness of your hearts. And then he goes on to explain it wasn't God's desire. God did not want divorce. He didn't want men to say, you know what? I, I, think, I, I think I like somebody else better. I think I want to go this direction. I want to do this. He didn't want women to do that either. That was not ever his heart. Matter of fact, what does Jesus say? Look, I'm not going to be pulled into your little debate here. Here's the issue. Your heart. The hardness of your heart. It's because of your sin. It's because you have not come to me as a little child. You are not coming to your wife in that same spirit of gentleness, of meekness, of humility, of trusting, of uh, forgiveness. That's the issue that we're dealing with right here. It's the hardness of your heart. And because you are sinful and because you are going to do these things, God said, all right, I want to provide for the woman. I want you to make, uh, I want to legally ascribe what that means when you do this because, because people were doing it anyway. So Jesus said it was the hardness of the heart that forced this to happen, but it was not God's desire. Now, incidentally, I, this is another sermon for another day. Uh, I do believe that the Bible gives three uh, contexts of which divorce is permissible. I don't think that God says, go out and get a divorce if this happens. I think, remember, it's a heart matter. It's always God's desire for the family to make it, for marriages to succeed. It always is. But there is a permission if the person wants to take it, but it's not his desire. Okay? Three reasons. Number one, adultery. That's a given. 
virtually by all cultures. And I would go as far as to say just a one-time shot uh, is not God's heart. Now, if you did that, if you want to be a legalistic, okay. Um, but adultery um, is one. Number two, another one uh, would be um, abandonment. Paul talks about that. If someone, if someone leaves, uh, particularly, again, we were in a culture that we're talking about here, 99.9% of it was the man, if they leave you and abandon you and take off, then that would be a reason. And then the third one, if you go back to Levitical law, abuse and injury, okay? Again, this was done toward the woman. I, I realize today sometimes there are women who injure men. I get that. Don't share a testimony or anything. Uh, but those are, the, those are the biblical grounds. Now, I recognize many of you have been through divorce. Many of you have remarried. I understand that. And God, it takes us right where we are. Uh, so this is not a big condemnation sermon on divorce, uh, but I'm simply trying to give you the context and the biblical understanding of divorce. So if you've divorced and remarried and it wasn't for one of those contexts and you be faithful with the spouse that you are with now, uh, don't try to go back and fix it all. I've dealt with those. That's a complete nightmare. And it's one of the reasons in the Old Testament uh, that Jesus said, once you divorce your wife, can't, uh, not Jesus, Jesus did say this, but in Old Testament law, which we don't live by, uh, Levitical law anymore, but once you divorce your wife, you couldn't go back to her. Uh, now, do I believe that's permissible today? Absolutely, I do. But one of the reasons they, they did that, so that the vow would not be uh, taken so lightly. So, with that understanding, let's continue. If you have questions, we'll talk about that more in detail. Uh, but there are challenges in life, and that's a challenge. Everyone in this room has been touched or affected by divorce. We all have. We all have friends or relatives uh, that have experienced divorce, uh, children, parents, uh, for some of us. It might be us individually, whatever the case might be. We've all been touched by That's one of the challenges in how are we going to live and how are we going to be great even in the midst of that. Can I tell you this? There are a lot of you that are single parents in here. We have a lot of single moms and single fathers here. Can I tell you this? That you can still be great in God's economy. I read some encouraging news this week. Um, I read some news this or a survey this week. I'm real big into surveys right now. And I was reading a survey and uh, what they found that single parents who have primary responsibility for their children, in other words, they are the primary resident parent at home, uh, they now said that 76% of those children will be fine. They will succeed uh, if the research shows as well as parents with two parents at home if these four things occur, if these four things happen. Number one, uh, interestingly enough, I, I thought, uh, was I was very surprised by this, that um, the the parents still have an amicable relationship and that the children sense that there is a healthy exchange. In other words, if uh, if you are divorced, if you're a single parent and you are degrading, regardless of how bad your ex is, your ex-wife or ex-husband is, if you're degrading them and your children are here, if they're seeing you speak disrespectfully, that damages that child. Okay, So you want to take the high road for multiple reasons because Jesus wants you to and for your child's sake. Number two, another Thing that uh, is important is that uh, that of that of faith that the child uh, senses your faith and your values and that they are lived out at home. Okay, uh, the third one uh, was church attendance. Uh, ironically, now they did find out if you attended church and didn't do the other things, it didn't make any difference. So just showing up at church, but that combined 
uh, was an impo- a very important aspect that was given there. And, uh, and then the, f- the fourth one uh, was that of, uh, scri- of prayer and Scripture, that, uh, you, they, that those parents uh, read Scripture with those ch- children and that they prayed over them. They found out when those four things were happening, uh, that in those in the last, excuse me, one little other caveat, they said, and the basic economic needs of that child are being met. That was one other caveat in there, uh, that those children did well. So I, I want to give you hope as a child. Is it what God intended? No. But it doesn't have to mean the destruction of your children if we do it God's way. And that's one of the challenges that we encounter here. So as we continue on here, uh, so Jesus says, look, from the beginning, it was made male and meet female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and be joined his wife. The two become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. Now in the house, the disciples questioned again on this matter. And they said, whoever divorces his wife, marries another, commits adultery. And if she commit, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Again, even though it wasn't legal by Jewish law, they said, well, it's included here in Mark, even a woman who does it, because we know Herodias did it. So sometimes it occurred, even though it wasn't, quote, legal. And sometimes that transpired. So Jesus makes it clear. He said, you know what? If you find yourself just divorcing someone for because you don't love them anymore, or because you want to go a different direction, he said, and you hook up with someone else, he goes, that's adultery. I, I didn't write it, guys. You'd be mad at me. Uh, this is just Jesus. You'll have to get mad at Jesus about this, okay? Uh, this is what Jesus said. And a lot of times, well, we don't like what Jesus said, so we like to, can I just take that part out? And I would like for you not to read or preach that. Uh, words of Christ. Uh, words of Ron might be wrong. Words of Christ, never wrong. All right, we're moving on. Now that we're all in such a good mood. Um, verse 12. Some people were bringing little children to him so that he might touch them, but his disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And after taking them in his arms, he laid his hands on them and blessed them. And then we see the story of the rich young ruler who comes with all his might and power and loot. Just what we were talking about at the beginning of the text, at the beginning of the story. What is great? And greatness shows up in their economy. He's rich. He's young. Got authority. He's got authority. He's got uh, responsibility. He's got power. So you see that contrasted again with a child. Uh, you see the child who does not have power, who does not have authority. And Jesus said, you know what? You're going to have to come to me like this. And again, it's not coincidence that this is coming right after him. We'll talk about this next week. So here's one that will not enter the kingdom of God because he cannot let go of his power. He cannot let go of his authority. And here's one who comes unassuming. How does a child come to Christ? How does a child come to most of us? Isn't it beautiful? I'm talking about small children. I know after they get to teenagers and older teens, it's not the same, so I get that. But I'm talking about small children. Matter of fact, the Greek word used here is for small children. You know, I've, I've got a four-year-old daughter, and let me give you some descriptions of her and how she comes to me. It's usually with humility. She comes with joy and humility. She trusts me. She's not judgmental. She's quick to forgive. Uh, she's joyful. Uh, she's real and honest. Uh, she's dependent. 
Again, be made, she'll say, Betty, I don't like you. And two minutes later, we can be rolling around, uh, and she'll around on the, on the, on the floor wrestling, and she'll tell me she loves me. Okay? She gets over it quick. She moves on. And she's hopeful. She always has that array of hope in her eyes. That's the picture of how we come to Christ. Jesus says you must come as a child. Now let's contrast this with Judas. That's a pretty eccentric example, I think. Judas. Judas was not humble. Judas uh, came to Christ in a spirit of pride. And he had uh, another goal in mind when he came. He didn't trust him. He didn't trust Jesus' message. He was constantly trying to sway Jesus. He was judgmental. Uh, he certainly uh, exercised a spirit of judge, uh, being judgmental in several instances. Everything from when the vase was broken. He said this could have been sold for the poor as he whisked people away. He wasn't simple. He had a very complex plan in mind. He wasn't available. There were multiple times he wasn't available. When Jesus went to the garden, Judas wasn't there. In the upper room when they were all there, Judas takes off. He wasn't joyful. He was cynical. He didn't believe things would change unless uh, power and um, basically militaristic action was taken. He wasn't real. He was deceptive the time he was a Christ. As a matter of fact, the Bible said that he stole money uh, from the purse that the disciples and Christ had. He wasn't dependent upon Christ. He was dependent upon his own agenda. He certainly wasn't forgiving because he couldn't wait uh, to see war break out. And his hope was in his plan, not the plan of Christ. Here's the question. Are we more like Judas or are we more like a child in our faith today? Jesus said this. He said, I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom like a little child will never enter into it. You know, there's a lot of talk about the great financial cliff that we're about to jump off at some point, And that's true. A lot of, a lot of truth. A lot of things you can think of that. But here's the bigger reality that I'm concerned about. It's the spiritual cliff that our nation is on right now. The spiritual decline. And if I had time, I would read your stories, but I don't want this to be a beat you up like last week and you just feel bad when you leave church, okay? Uh, but it's concerning when there are teenagers lined up outside of areas that have now made marijuana legal and they're, signed, they're, they're lined up waiting for the opportunity to go in, okay? And we could get into discussion after discussion after discussion. Uh, but the truth of it is we are headed toward a spiritual cliff more than where you are even a financial cliff. <clears throat> you know what I believe? I believe until we repent and we become his children and we recognize our hope is in Christ. We do not have the power or the authority to fix things. Our hope is in Christ. And if we don't take this commission seriously and begin to train our children and begin to share the hope and the good news of the gospel, we will find ourselves jumping off the spiritual cliff for which there is not a return. But there's good news. You know, if I go back about 1,500 years before this time, about 3,500 years before now. If I went to the book of Kings, Second Kings, there's a story about a guy named Manasseh. And the Bible describes him as probably being the worst king that ever ruled Judah. And But for 55 years he ruled, and he was just a tyrant. I, I won't even go into all the things he did. He, The worst of, he, he sacrificed, like we talked about a while ago about sacrificing your children. He fact, sacrificed one of his sons uh, to the fire, to the god Molech. But he had a grandson who had a mother who seems, it seems, and we're reading in between the lines, who influenced him. And when that, that boy was eight years old, Josiah, uh, he began uh, to seek the heart of God. And at 18, 
when he comes into power, the country goes through a revival and reform because somebody stood strong. Matter of fact, it was a boy. And revival happens because a boy stands and says, you know what, I believe the truth and I'm going to do what's right. And I want to know Yahweh God. I want to follow him and I want to live by his precepts. Hey, can I tell you, it doesn't matter how old or young you are. You can make that decision today for you, for your family. If you know Christ, to stand firm, to stand strong, to say, Lord, I'm coming to you as a child. I am humbling myself before you. I am putting my hope and my dependence upon you. It's not in what I can make. And I want to be great in your economy. I don't want to be great at home. I want to be a great father. I want to be a great husband. I want to be a great follower of Christ. And that's where I'm going to put my time, talent, money and energy, that's what I think is most important. So I am determined to live that out today. And we want to help you with that process. That's why we offer Bible studies. That's why we offer discipleship. That's why we offer training. Take that step today. And if you don't know Christ, I want to ask you to become great in His economy, great in His kingdom by trusting Him, recognizing that you are a sinner. You cannot save yourself, that you're not as good as you think you are, and transferring your trust to what Christ did. Put your hope like a child puts his hope. And say, God, I trust you. I can't do it, but I trust and I believe and I give you my life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And God, we place before your throne our lives. And God, I pray that we would all be as children, that we would recognize our need in how great you are, that we would put our hope and our trust and our faith in you and we'd quit working our own agenda and that we would turn our faith and life to you. Lord, if there's somebody that doesn't know you, I pray that you would draw them by the power of your spirit. They would recognize their need and they would trust you and receive your great salvation today. Thank you for this time. In your name I pray. Amen.